So today's reading is from Ephesians 1, verse 1 to 10. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Ephesians 1, verse 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us the one, us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect in the times when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good. Well, James, thank you very much indeed. Let's, uh, let's keep our Bibles open at that passage. Um, I don't know if you know this, but um, I think it's been the consistent testimony of the church down the centuries that Ephesians and Romans have probably been the two most influential books in the New Testament. So the journey that we're starting this morning is an important one. It's going to take us through until about the end of November. And uh, I do encourage you not to miss one episode. Well, let's ask for the Lord's help as we begin this journey together. Heavenly Father, you, you know that we are living in days of great darkness, brokenness, and confusion. And we desperately need to hear your voice. So we commit this series into your hand and ask that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, to love him more dearly, and to follow him more nearly. And we ask in his precious name. Amen. Well, in uh, 2018, uh, Forbes magazine uh, published a list of the most powerful people in the world. I don't know why they haven't done it since. It's probably COVID or something. It's the last list I could find. Um, at the time they published it, the population of the world was 7.5 billion people. And uh, according to Forbes magazine, of those 7.5 billion, there are just 75 people who apparently matter more than the rest of us. Uh, 75 people 
who make a real difference in the world today. Well, at top of the list was President Qi, I can't pronounce his name, but the chap in China, you know him. And in second place was Vladimir Putin. And they were followed by uh, an assortment of businessmen and politicians. Some of them, I guess, household names, many of them I'd never heard of. What struck me was that apart from the Pope, who came in at number six, there were no born-again Christians on the list, not one. It was, I think, a sobering reminder that as far as the rest of the world is concerned, we Christians are a pretty insignificant bunch. And uh, to Christian men and women trying to follow Jesus in a local church, it sometimes feels, doesn't it, like the world might be right. Uh, we often feel, don't we, that we are inadequately equipped to deal with the dark and darkness and the brokenness that is wrecking the lives of so many of the people that we love and care about. Uh, Rick Gray is a missionary serving in a local church in Uganda. And uh, in one of his prayer letters, this is what he said, quote, Please pray. Our church is in the fight for its life over the issue of polygamy. Please pray. The rebels attacked again this spring, forcing us to withdraw from the people we're trying to serve, and they have had to stay behind in the greatest danger. Please pray that the catechism being formed by the church leadership will teach the gospel of grace and not simply be a legalistic response to generations of paganism. And please pray against my own tendency to serve as though God's work here depends on my ability to get things done rather than on his sovereign mercy and grace. End quote. Well, of course, you and I are not in Uganda this morning, and we might not be facing exactly this, the same challenges here at St. Barnabas. But I think most of us know that the forces against us sometimes seem to be so massive, so overwhelming, that it can feel that they might sweep us away altogether. And uh, in those moments, we find ourselves asking, well, where can we possibly find the strength to stand against this opposition and make a positive difference for Christ? Now, that is the question that the Apostle Paul is answering in this very precious letter to the church at Ephesus. This letter is God's gracious provision to all of his children who are seeking to live for him in a hostile world. A little bit of background will help us grasp the context. Um, at the time that Paul was writing, Ephesus was a hugely important city in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was second in size and importance only to Rome itself. Uh, with a population of around a quarter of a million people and a thriving port, it was a wealthy city. In fact, with good reason, it was known as the mother city in Asia Minor. 
But spiritually, it was a very dark place indeed. The lives of everyone in Ephesus were overshadowed by two powerful forces in particular. Uh, The first was the power of the emperor. Uh, In 9 BC, the emperor Augustus redesigned the calendar around the date of his birth. And uh, he announced that his birth, can you believe it, marked the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of good tidings for the whole world. And he was the head of a new and everlasting dynasty. And uh, eventually he declared himself to be a god. And from that time on, all citizens in the Roman Empire were required to worship him. The the second powerful force in Ephesus was the temple of the goddess Artemis, or Diana. It was actually the the largest temple in the ancient world, and that's because Artemis was believed to have power over every area of life, everything that truly mattered. So she dominated not just the spiritual life of the city, but also its, its cultural and economic life as well. Uh, So the temple wasn't simply a place of worship. Can you believe it? It actually functioned as the central bank. So if you wanted financial advice, instead of making an appointment to go and see your financial advisor, you went to the temple. And if your marriage was going through rather a rough patch, well, you could always go and see one of the temple prostitutes. The general consensus at the time was that anybody who refused to worship Artemis was a fool and old-fashioned. Now that was the context in which God established this church, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 19. But I think already you can see the problem. If a quarter of a million of your neighbours are worshipping Artemis and Caesar, but you are part of a tiny, tiny community who refuse to do that, well, it won't be very long before you start to feel very isolated, irrelevant, and threatened. In fact, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says that defending the gospel in Ephesus was rather like being thrown to the lions. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15 and verse 32. That's how tough it was to be a Christian in Ephesus. So Paul is writing this letter from prison to encourage this small church as they seek to live for God in an increasingly hostile environment. Now if you want one verse to summarize Paul's objective in writing... I think that would be chapter 6, verse 10. Just turn over and have a look at it. Chapter 6, verse 10. Why is Paul writing this letter? Well, he says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, that is the pastoral objective of this letter. And what a timely message it is for us. Because, like the Ephesians... We are a small church in the mother city, seeking to live for God, but battling hugely powerful forces 
that are opposed to the gospel. False teaching. Uh, The implacable hatred to any claim to absolute truth. The mindless lust for endless entertainment. These, my friends, are very powerful enemies. Where on earth are we going to find the strength for godly living? And Paul's answer is that we find our strength in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now how we do that and what it actually looks like in the trenches of daily life are the subject, the thread, the golden theme running right the way through the letter. So now that we know the background, let's turn to the letter itself and let me show you the first surprise. See, I think if you were writing an email to a friend who was feeling really rather overwhelmed by their circumstances, how would you begin? Well, I think if it was me, I'd begin with a word of encouragement. I might say, well, look, you know, we've heard about your situation. Uh, Please hang on in there. We're praying for you. That's what we would do. Paul doesn't. He begins by taking the focus away from all the problems and difficulties and encouraging us to praise God. Now, I think that's a bit of a surprise. We wouldn't necessarily begin like that. So come with me to verse 3, which is the summary statement Uh, of the whole passage, the whole of verses 1 to 10. Verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now at this point, Paul gets super carried away, so that in the original Greek... Uh, Everything from verse 3 to verse 14 is one long sentence of over 200 words with no full stops. Uh, 200 words of overflowing praise in one sentence. And uh, just when you think he surely must pause and take a breath, he thinks of something else to praise God for. You can't stop him. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that that... Uh, that Paul's passion and exuberance and praise is actually a challenge to my cold and rather lukewarm heart. Do you find that this morning? Uh, If Paul was sitting next to you, praising God in this very over-the-top exuberant way, I wonder how you would react. Uh, Would you follow his example? Or perhaps you might find yourself feeling rather embarrassed and shuffling along the pew a little way to get get, uh, some distance between you and him. And anyway, what is he so excited about? Because if we're going to praise God in this way, we need to know. Well, Paul just can't get over the fact that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and we need to pause on that because our problem is that we're so totally preoccupied with material blessings isn't that right I mean we might think that spiritual blessings are nice but not really worth getting very excited about because what excites people today are material blessings like um, I don't know a new smartphone or 
a better job or having excellent health, uh, or where we're going on holiday, uh, or the kind of car we drive, or the, the retirement plan, or whatever it is. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. They are important. But what we so easily forget is that these things, all of them, are temporary. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow. By contrast, the spiritual blessings that God has given us are different. For a start, they're invisible. But I want to say to you, that doesn't make them any less real. In fact, there is a sense in which they are more real, because unlike your car or your holiday, the spiritual blessings God gives last forever. We'll say more about that later. But for now, please will you notice who has been given these spiritual blessings because not everyone is included. God has not blessed everyone with these things. And I know as soon as I say that, that's a very unpopular thing to say. Because people today like to think that God treats everyone in exactly the same way. Now, of course, there is one sense in which that is true, because God causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous without distinction. But the things that Paul is celebrating in verses 1 to 10 are given to one group of people only. They're given to those who are in Christ, and no one else. Notice, will you, how often he uses the phrase. Uh, it's there in verse 1. It's there again in verse 3. It's there again in verse 4, verse 7, and verse 9. Now, who are these people? Well, interestingly, the Apostle Paul never uses the word Christian anywhere in his letters. He could have done, because the word was already in use. But whenever Paul wants to say something about Christians, he always, without exception, talks about those who are in Christ. It's a phrase that he repeats 11 times in the first 14 verses of Ephesians, and more than 160 times in all his letters. Why? Why does he do that? <clears throat> well, I think it's because when we become Christians, we don't simply receive a benefits package. Uh, so becoming a Christian is not like joining a club. Uh, so think about it with me. When you um, join Western Province, for example, or perhaps when you join a particular medical aid scheme, they might give you a welcome pack. But uh, when you become a Christian, God does not give you a welcome pack with a number of vouchers in it, uh, marked forgiveness or eternal life or hope and so on. Now, when you become a Christian, and this is the important point, God gives you Christ himself. You are united to Christ in such a way that what is true for him is also true for you. 
Now, that is a pretty amazing thought, isn't it? If you and I are ever going to be strong in the Lord, you've got to start there. We've got to get it absolutely clear in our minds that when a person is converted, their identity changes. So, I'm no longer just Simon in Cape Town. Uh, I am in Cape Town. But of far greater importance is the fact that I am Simon in Christ. And the implications of that statement are massive. Just to give you one example, turn ahead to chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6, Paul is talking about every Christian. And he says, quote, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, I'm not going to pretend for one moment that we can ever get to the bottom of everything Paul means in that sentence. But the very least that Paul is saying here is that if you are in Christ, God sees you sitting with Christ in the throne room of heaven itself. Now, let me ask you, did you think about yourself like that when you got out of bed this morning? Did you? No one's nodding. You see, it is an astonishing privilege, isn't it, to be like that, to be in the throne room of heaven with Christ. That is how God sees you if you are a Christian. And that the spiritual power that flows from that is channeled into your life through the spiritual blessings that Paul talks about in our passage this morning. So what are these spiritual blessings that Christians ought to be praising God for? Well, I think probably the best way to approach this is by thinking about the passage under two headings. And if you're terrified about how long my introduction has been, don't worry, I promise you we will finish on time. Two headings. Praise God, number one, praise God for informing us of his eternal purpose. Heading number two, praise God for including us in his eternal purpose. So the important words are informing and including. Got it? So firstly then, praise God for informing us of his eternal purpose. Now, in this very long sentence of over 200 words, the spotlight falls fairly and squarely on verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 give us the big idea in the passage. And you'll notice that verse 9 tells us that the big idea concerns a mystery. Now, at first sight, that doesn't sound terribly helpful. But don't be confused by it. You know, when you and I hear the word mystery today, we tend to think, don't we, of a puzzle that we've got to try and solve by ourselves. No one else is going to do it for us. But in the Bible, a mystery is a secret that can be known, but only when God reveals it. By ourselves, we could never work it out in a billion years. No human being could. 
And here in verse 9, Paul says that God has made known to us, that is to those who are in Christ, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, will you remember that um, when Paul was writing Ephesians, the New Testament hadn't actually been written. So the will of God was recorded only in what we call the Old Testament. And what Paul is saying here is that the will of God, as recorded in the Old Testament, is actually a mystery. Now, what does he mean? Well, try thinking about this. Try thinking about it like the scaffolding on a building. I mean, there are lots of building projects going on in Cape Town at the moment. Many of them, particularly down in the CBD, have got scaffolding around them. And when you see scaffolding around a building, you've got some idea of the shape and the size of the structure, how tall it is, how wide it is, and so on. But all of the really important details are actually hidden by the scaffolding itself. And as long as the scaffolding is still there, we don't really know what the building is for or whether it's going to be an eyesore or whether it's actually going to be stunningly beautiful. If we want to know more, someone has to tell us. And Paul is saying, you see, that God's will, his eternal purpose for the universe, is just like that building. It was partially revealed and partially concealed by the scaffolding of the Old Testament. All the most important details were hidden. But when Christ came, the scaffolding had done its job and it could be dismantled. So that for the first time, we see clearly what God's purpose has always been from the very beginning of history. And you'll notice in verse 10, please put your eye on verse 10, very important verse. Paul tells us that God's purpose has always been to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now let's pause on that for a moment and consider the implications. Because God has revealed this to Christians, It means that you and I have to completely revise the way that we think about history. Now, I must uh, make sure I check this with Alice afterwards, but I think I'm right in saying that in schools today, children are told that history is either the story of the steady progress of humanity through the ages, or they're taught that it's sort of circular. Um, an endless series of random, disconnected events that keep being repeated round and round, endlessly in a circle. But because of verse 10, we've got to throw both of those ideas out of the window and say instead that history is a straight line. It has a beginning, it has an end. And in between... God is working out his eternal purpose to unite all things in heaven and on earth under the rule of Jesus. And please will you notice 
that the scope of God's control here includes all things. So for the people who first received this letter, that included the Roman Empire with all of its hostility, and it included the rampant paganism that was alive and well in Ephesus. For us this morning, it includes the selfishness of our society, the spiritual indifference of our family and friends to Christian things, the hostility of the most powerful people and institutions, everything, in fact, that seems to threaten the existence of God's church. Paul says all of those things are under God's control as he works out his sovereign purpose for the entire universe. And two things follow from that. The first is that if you are in Christ, if you are seated with Christ in the throne room of heaven this morning, and you are at the very heart of what God is doing in the universe, well, how can you possibly settle for keeping God at arm's length in some areas of your life? I mean, how can any of us actually say, well, I'll worship you on Sunday morning, please don't ask me to worship you on Saturday night? Because we'll never be strong in the Lord if we think like that. Second, if all of history is heading to the point where God brings all things under Christ, well, I think it follows, doesn't it, that the local church today ought to be a scale model of that future event. It means that we should be doing absolutely everything in our power to make St. Barnabas a picture of what it looks like to be united under one head, even Christ, and to do it in such a way that other people can see it. And if that is true, well, is there really any room in any of our lives for solo Christianity? I mean, can we honestly convince ourselves that God is happy with us simply standing on the touchline, so to speak, but never actually getting involved in the life of the church? I mean, how on earth does that help the world see what God is doing? And of course, if we are to be united under Christ, we've got to be extremely careful, haven't we, not to allow anything in our lives that might lead to division within the church family. So there's no room, is there, for unkind words that lead to grudges. And we've got to be individually ruthless in dealing with unresolved anger or lies or any kind of impurity. And instead, we've got to be resolutely committed to dealing with each other in love. Why? Well, because God has informed us of his eternal purpose. We know how the world ends. No one else does. Now you might say to me, well, it's all very well, Simon, but where on earth does the power come from to live like that? Because quite honestly, I don't think I've got the strength to do it. And the answer to your question is, you're quite right, you haven't. 
Which brings us to our second heading this morning. Because if the first thing is that Paul says, praise God for informing us of his eternal purpose, the second thing he says in this magnificent paragraph is praise God for including us in his eternal purpose. So we've seen um, in verses 9 and 10 that Jesus is the head and the destiny of everything. Jesus is the whole point of existence. And it follows that everyone who is in Christ is irreversibly caught up in God's great purpose for the world. That is actually the main point of the passage. God doesn't simply tell us what he's doing. He's included us in it. Now that should make a huge difference to the way that we think about ourselves. So let me give you an illustration. It is the difference, I think, between reading about a wedding, reading about Ruby and Sebastian's wedding, and being invited to be the best man or one of the bridesmaids. That's the difference. Or it's the difference between listening to a concert with the most beautiful music you've ever heard and actually playing in the orchestra. Now, some of the words in these verses raise all kinds of huge questions in people's minds. And I expect that questions about predestination and free will are top of everybody's list and always will be until Christ returns. And, of course, these questions are terribly important. But I do want to encourage you to see that Paul here is not writing a theological essay on the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That's not what he's doing. We're bound to scratch our heads about the, the implications behind some of the big ideas here. But if, as we read these verses, we, we find ourselves bogged down in sort of hectic intellectual debate, rather than praising God for the amazing things he's given us in Jesus, well, I've got to tell you, we're on the wrong road. What we've got to see is that Paul is encouraging us to praise God for choosing us to be his people. He's trying to strengthen us to live for God, both individually, but also as a family. So what can we take away from these verses to help us do that in the coming week? Let me suggest three blessings to celebrate. Number one, let's celebrate God's initiative. Let's have another look at verse four, will you? Paul says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, then it's because of God's initiative. It's not that you chose him. He chose you. And he did it before the foundation of the world. Why did he do it? Well, it's not that God was looking down from heaven to see who was doing well, who was trying the hardest, who was living the most morally upright life, who was showing the greatest spiritual potential. It was none of those things. It's something God did 
without any reference whatsoever to your merits or mine. And uh, if you're a Christian, it's only because in eternity past, God chose you, knowing precisely what you would be like, and in spite of knowing precisely what you would be like, he chose you anyway. So let's celebrate God's initiative. Second, let's celebrate God's design. Also, verse 4, Paul says God chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, of course, you're all well-taught Bible-believing Christians, and so you know that that is how God chooses to see us once we are in Christ. But at the same time, it also invests our lives with great dignity and significance. We have been given a very high and holy calling that the rest of the world, your unbelieving friends and family, know absolutely nothing about. Lots of people tie themselves up in knots, wondering what on earth it is that God wants them to do. And verse 4 contains an entire Christian ethics course in just eight words. Because God wants you and me to be holy and blameless in his sight. That is God's design, and it is our ambition for every area of our lives. You see, that tells me, doesn't it, how I am to act at home, how I am to act at college, tells me how to use my money, it tells me how to relate to my brothers and sisters at church, it even tells me what I should and shouldn't watch on the smartphone, doesn't it? So this week, let's celebrate God's design. And then thirdly and lastly, let's celebrate God's love. End of verse 4, Paul says, In love, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Now that's important. Because God didn't simply predestine us to follow a system of ethics. He's predestined us to belong to a family. And uh, I wonder if we fully appreciate what Paul is saying here. The ladies might be wondering, what on earth is this business about sons? Where do I fit in? I want you to understand that in the New Testament, sonship is not a gender-specific word. He's talking about women as well as men. It's a, it's a sign of our exalted status. Why do I say that? Well, because in those days, you see, a daughter couldn't actually inherit her father's estate. That's the way the law worked in those days. So when God calls every Christian, male and female, a son, it means that he's nominated you to be his heir. He's giving you a full share in everything that God is going to be doing when he unites all things under Christ in the new creation. And the reason that you can be so sure of your inheritance is because of the blood of Jesus, verse 7. 
in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins so you are a son this morning because all your sins have been forgiven even that massive sin in your past the one that you can never forget God has chosen to remember it no more. All of them have been wiped away by the shed blood of Jesus. And now this morning, God looks at you and sees you as clean and perfect in Christ. So friends, we have been informed by God. We have been included by God. We have every conceivable spiritual blessing wherever we live, whoever we are. And if we want to be strong in the Lord, the place to start is by counting our blessings in Christ. And that, my dear friends, is your homework this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You've set us free from everything that held us captive to sin and death. You've made us members of your eternal family and included us in your perfect plan for the universe. We don't deserve any of it, but you have lavished your love on us, and we are thankful. So, Father, this week, please turn our careless minds away from any material blessings we might have, and help us to focus instead on these wonderful, powerful spiritual blessings. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.